If you're here this morning with a Bible, I want to encourage you to take it out and open it up to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. We are starting a new series, and in that series, uh, we are, are going verse by verse through the book of Colossians. This morning, we're going to cover a little bit of what we covered last week, because what we're trying to do is, as we get into the book of Colossians, understand the background. For many of you, uh, you might not be familiar with the Bible, the Colossian uh, the letter to the Colossians was uh, one of the early letters uh, written in the New Testament, and we have it in our, our Bibles today, and I'll give you a little bit of insight if we can get things working here as you turn there. This is where the Colossian church was at. It was uh, Colossae is the actual name of the city. If you're not familiar with the Mediterranean Sea, this is a picture of modern-day Turkey. There's a little thumb that sticks out along with Greece to the left. And the Colossian church was about 100 miles, a little more than 100 miles due east of the church of Ephesus. So if you're flipping through your Bible and you're trying to find it, or if you have your phone and you're, you're wondering what are all these other books, there's a, there's a book in there called Ephesus or Ephesians. And Ephesus was a huge, important hub of Christianity. And so it was all together with Laodicea, uh, as well as Lystra, Derby, another Antioch. There's another Antioch in Syria. But a number of the, the letters in the New Testament were written to churches that are in modern-day Turkey, and you might not really understand that, as well as modern-day Greece. And the church um, at Colossae had some tremendous challenges. They were um, blessed with the opportunity to hear from the Apostle Paul. That's who wrote this letter. But they were founded by a guy by the name of Epaphras, and we're going to read about him in just a little bit. But the challenges were, were pretty much, um, as you can see here, it was in a beautiful area. Uh, the arrow is pointing to the tell or the ancient site where the city once stood. It is, it's not been excavated, but you can see in the background a beautiful mountain and a, and a very large population of people in this valley. It's very much like Baker in a lot of ways, a little more green, but the challenge was this. They were sharing the truth of the gospel in a community and in a nation that was incredibly dark. They had no idea uh, who God really was, and they had other religions that they had adopted um, for a variety of reasons. In this opening picture um, of our subject this morning is Jesus. I took this uh, as I was standing uh, by the Mediterranean Sea. This is the city where Paul uh, departed for Rome as he was imprisoned. And you could see there an amphitheater and many of the statues of other gods and other people in Israel, the entire Old Testament, if you're familiar, again, with the Bible reading through there, the greatest challenge the people would have was not anything of this world. It was always, do we worship the one true God or do we go after the gods of other nations? And they constantly would fail at that. And God preserved this faithful remnant whom he would bring a savior the challenge for us today, and, and I don't know if you're aware of this, uh, but maybe you are, at least if you, you know, kind of open your eyes as you drive around our community, there are dozens and dozens of church buildings in our community alone, and we're a pretty small community. If you jump out there on Amazon or any of your favorite uh, podcasts or, or any apps that you look at as far as Christian uh, tools or resources that you might try to view or, or use, 
there's so many out there, you're like, I wonder if they're all true. And if so, if they're all different, how can I figure out what really is true? And that was the challenge faced by the church at Colossae. They were being inundated within the church, not outside the church, of false teaching. And so let me set up a little bit more background, not just of where it was located. Let me kind of read through a little bit, and you can listen or you can follow along to help you understand the context. Because as we're about to, to read about who Jesus is, he is the subject of today's message, you really need to put it in context because the understanding in the church, even these little children that come up and share their memory verses or this past week at our kids event, they understand who Jesus is for a period of time. But then all of a sudden, as you grow up, as you, maybe you go into to college or if you get out of college or whatever you do in this world, all of a sudden you're hearing all these different teachings and you're thinking, man, was what I was taught as a child or I heard at my local church, was that really true? Well, you're, you're no different than the early church that has been going on since the very beginning. But here's the thing. We are called to do something. So in chapter 2, kind of setting up the, uh, or the end of chapter 1, verse 26 or 28, it begins to give you a setting or a context for this letter. It says, Him we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. <clears throat> the Bible actually speaks of both unbelievers and believers, but within the category of believers, there are two different groups that we often don't talk about in the church. The Bible describes one group as immature, like babies, and the others are mature, and the mature ones have went through a process. They have purposely pursued a path that led them to maturity. Part of the job of the church, of teachers, of pastors, of elders, is to help everyone grow in maturity in Christ. So as you're beginning to look around, you know how to distinguish what is true and untrue. And the very foundation is simply this, Jesus. As you will begin to look around in the community or the books or the resources that you examine, if anyone adds to Jesus or takes away from Jesus, it is a sure sign that they've departed from the truth. I honestly believe there really aren't very many major divisions within Christianity at all if you just simply hold to the Jesus of the Bible. But when you start taking away parts of the Bible, describing who Jesus is or adding to, you run afoul very quickly. Well, what was going on in the Colossian church? Skip down to chapter 2, verse 8. It says this. The apostle Paul warns them. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental principles or spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So right off the bat, he's warning them, don't go after philosophies. Don't go after the principles of this world. Stick to Christ. And you're going to understand why in just a minute as we look at who Christ is. Skip a little further down to verse 16, chapter 2. 
It says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. What they were doing right off the bat, you can see part of their doctrinal error, part of their mixture of, of false teachings was pulling in some teachings out of the Old Testament that Jesus had fulfilled. All the promises of God are yes in Christ. He has fulfilled the Old Testament law. So they were reintroducing some Hebrew traditions that were fine enough of themselves if you use them properly and they were pointing to Christ, but they were requiring them to do this. So they were adding on to Jesus. Skip down a little further, verse 18. says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism or the worship of angels, going on into detail about visions puffed up without reason by the sensuous mind and holding fast to the head. So there was this second aspect. They weren't only just pulling in uh, Hebrew um, traditions and commands and bringing it into the new covenant. They were making up stuff as far as worship of angels and visions. And I can tell you, this is actually common today. I don't know about you, but if you're looking for books in a Christian bookstore, or now they've pretty much gone away, if you're out there on the Amazon, there are all sorts of books on, on angels, and people really go in depth about their angels and, and spirits, and, and you might run across individuals at work or at home and, or in your family that are very spiritual, and they're always speaking about spiritual things, even visions that or dreams that they've heard, and the scriptures warn Beware of people who are adding on to this kind of stuff, that they're taking you down that path. It's not a good path. So that's the challenge that the Colossians were facing. And so here, let's step back just a little bit and go back to kind of an overall outline and where we've arrived at in the book of Colossians. First, introduction. Let's begin very first verse of chapter one. Read along if you like. To yourself, I'll read, I'll be reading out of the ESV. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So a brief introduction. Then he goes into the gospel and he says this, We always thank God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. So if you've ever heard anyone referring to the gospel, it's just simply this. It's repenting of your sins, turning and trusting in Jesus Christ to save you from those sins, and you confess him as Lord. He is now in control of your life. You trust in him. And it's by grace, his grace alone, through faith. There's nothing that you add on to it. There's nothing that you take from it. And we're about to see that in just a moment. But that is simply the good news or the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says this in verse 6, which, you, which has come to you, and indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it, is, um, as it has done among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So it's by grace, and it's this claim that it's true. You see, there are a lot of philosophies out there today, as there were in the, in the day that this was written. And you have to decide what is actually true. And the gospel is a historical claim of truth that builds from the very beginning of creation all the way to the end of the world. 
It is eyewitness testimony of something that occurred in a place and time, and it builds upon what is leading up to this mystery that is revealed in Scripture. So the Old Testament is not philosophy. I, I challenge you to read it. It is history. It is poetry. It is all pointing to Christ. The Gospels themselves, we have four accounts of the life, ministry, and death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I would encourage you to read those. You won't find philosophy in there. You'll find a historical account of truth claims. And what you have to decide is, is it true? Is it evidentially true? Is it logically true? Is Jesus who he says and who he claimed to be? the very Son of God who came to pay for your sins and mine, that without that payment, we, are, we remain in sin without hope. But if you've ever come before God, humbled yourself, repented, he will forgive you. Not only will he forgive you, he will grant you eternal life. And that's what he goes on to talk about in this transition, he says this in verse 7, Just as you've learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Verse 9, And so, from the day we have heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. So we went through this verse by verse um, the last time we were here, and the whole idea that he arrives at in verse 13 is simply this. What kingdom are you living for? When you have trusted in Jesus Christ, he transfers us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. So for the individual in here that doesn't know God, doesn't, never even thought about God, the Bible describes this world as darkness. It was created good, but sin marred it. And it still reflects the glory of God and his goodness, but it doesn't take long to figure out something has went awry. This uh, past week, I don't know what, what was going on in your life, but I was just going through my day and someone recognized me as a pastor in the community. He didn't even know my name. This individual didn't know what church I was from, but he came to me. He was older than me and, and I, I felt really honored, but he asked me, he said, uh, excuse me, you pastor a church, and I, I think that's right. And I said, yes, it's a pleasure to meet you. And he said, I've got a question for you. He says, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Many of you maybe have heard that question, but I've heard it enough to know this. No one asked that question, or very few people ask that question, unless something really bad has happened to them. And so what they're really asking is, why has God allowed my child to die? Why has God allowed my wife to be given cancer? Why has God allowed it? And then you just fill in the blank of whatever evil that you see in this world. And so I tried to patiently and lovingly explain to them what the Bible has to say. But the truth of the matter is this, as long as we're living in this world and God granted mankind dominion over this world and the freedom to choose either to love him or to not and to reject him, we live in a dark, evil world. But the good news of Jesus is not just that God sent a savior, but Jesus will return someday in judgment. And there is a hope 
eternally for those who have trusted in him. That this world is not the end. It will come to an end and there will be a new heavens and a new earth where sin will no longer reign. Even if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ, you can recognize the difference between sin and evil and good. But the problem is this. If you've never faced it biblically, you have no grounds for saying what is evil and what is good unless there is an ultimate standard. And that standard is God. And so this is the challenge that they were facing. They were looking at what does this kingdom really look like? What are they really, what should we really be living for? And if we can get the next slide, here we go. In case you don't have scripture, and it says, And so from the day we have heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with all knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as you're living for this kingdom of the beloved son, his prayer is this, that you would be filled with all knowledge, with spiritual wisdom and understanding. So you know how to think spiritually and act spiritually in the kingdom of God. And you do that through the word of God. Verse 10 is, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Well, how do we do that? Is it just going to church? Is it just reading your Bible? Is it just any of that? Well, there's a lot that is happening here. Let's continue on and see if we can get it, the next part of it here. Excellent, it's working. Verse 10, it says this. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Once again, maturity. It's real, real easy. I don't know about you. To sleep in it on a Sunday morning. How many Sunday mornings do you really skip in a year? Come on, let's be honest. A dozen? Two dozen? Do you, here's, here's the real test. When you're on vacation, do you go to find a church locally wherever you're at and go to worship? Or do you take a break from God as well? Don't look at me, Scott. I, that's not me. That's not me. We all do that. We often think that, that living for the kingdom of God is going to church. And that's a great place to start. I love having you here. I love getting to know you, fellowshipping, encouraging one another, building one another up. But it's a little bit more than that. God actually desires that we bear fruit. In other words, that we produce fruit that is evidence of our, of our love and relationship with God. The, the Bible describes fruit in a variety of ways. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, right? Kids will do that. They will test that, whether or not you really love Jesus, right? The fruit of the Spirit. But there are other things. Increasing in the knowledge of God. Do you really understand who Jesus is, who God is, through the very pages of Scripture? Or do you just guess at it? If you just guess at it, then you will likely look around at all these different resources and all these different churches and just throw up your hands. But if you dig into Scripture you'll know what is actually in it and what it says about God. And you'll be able to hear certain things and go, you know, that's not right. That's not right. I can tell you, and it's really getting sad today, most of the information, whether it's on TV, on podcasts, uh, in written literature, 
whatever the case, most of it has went off the tracks and is, it is teaching false or twisted theology. They have taken Jesus and added something to him or they're removing the focus from him and placing it on riches or prosperity or healings or, or miraculous signs or visions. Things have changed dramatically just in my lifetime in our culture. So as we begin to examine what it is really like to live in the kingdom of God, increasing in the knowledge of God is a key aspect of it. But he continues, he says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious mind. This is the Holy Spirit working in your life for all endurance and patience with joy. Let me just ask you this. Have your problems this past week been problems associated with the kingdom or the domain of darkness? Or have they been problems associated with the kingdom of God? What's amazing is part of living for the kingdom of God is learning to endure with all patience and joys the issues that you face in this world. Whether it's relationship issues, work issues, whatever the case may be, you, you have to live and understand that this world, in this world, yes, there will be trials and tribulations and difficulties, but you're not living for this world. You're living in it. You're living for the kingdom of God. So whenever you face difficulties that seem overwhelming, impossible, incurable uh, diagnoses with diseases, uh, relationship issues where spouses come to you and they say they want a divorce, um, kids with difficulties that seem so impossible to deal with, things that would change apparently your entire future. How do you view that? It is through endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. There is a future perspective. And finally, you get to the last verse here, verse 13. He, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And this is where we're going to begin the next several weeks of looking at who Jesus is. And most people continue on into verse 14, and let's do it now. It actually starts a new Greek sentence. And as you begin to mature, hopefully in Christ, and really look at who Jesus is, maybe for the very first time over the coming weeks, and as we finish today, let's begin with this. Jesus, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. There's a lot that scripture talks about, but the very first thing that you need to know about Jesus is he is the redeemer of the entire world for those who believe and trust in him. This idea of redeeming is, is a little bit um, different. You don't find that today. How many of you have run across a need to redeem something this past week? Well, good. That means you haven't like hawked anything at the hawk shop because you would have to go back and buy it back, right? If you're really poor, you, you understand pawn shops are there for a reason. Uh, immediate cash. But here's the, the picture in the, the New Testament era. The vast majority of the population that we looked at in modern-day Turkey were slaves. Not slaves like we think of based upon the color of your skin, but, but they were slaves based upon nationality. And you could have extraordinarily well-educated slaves. And as a matter of fact, 
Those were the preferred slaves. As Rome would go in and conquer nations, they would take the best, the cream of the crop of that population and bring them back into the colonies surrounding Rome. So they would take the best, leave the worst. Kind of makes sense. And so when you would redeem someone, you would pay a price. You would buy them their freedom. You would redeem them out of slavery. And that is who Jesus is. He's not just a guy that was a good teacher. He redeems us. If you have the the King James Bible, uh, it says this, in whom we have redemption through his blood. Later Greek manuscripts have added in through his blood. Whether you believe it original or not, it makes no difference because Ephesians 1, 7 says this, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So our redemption was purchased not with cash. It was purchased with the very blood of Jesus Christ. So any of you have kids? Yeah, a few of you do. Some of you are just big kids like me. Would you be willing to give your child for the life of everyone else in here? If we said the price to purchase everyone in here to redeem them from the bondage of sin and slavery, from the, the, the judgment of death and hell, would you sacrifice your child? Some of you are like, yep, sign me up. No, no, no. A couple of you are like, I see a few kids in here looking like, Mom, don't do it. Don't do it. I'm, please, Mom, don't do it. But Jesus willingly laid down his life so he could redeem us. And so this changes everything. I don't know what you've been taught. I don't know what philosophy or belief system you've come from, but this isn't a philosophy. This is a factual reality. There was a man who claimed to be the very son of God who laid his life down and and made the claim it was for a purpose to redeem us, to save us, to pay the price for us. That's this amazing aspect of who Jesus is. And so when you begin to look at Jesus, this might be fairly familiar to you, but let's continue on. He is our Redeemer, and He is our Savior, the forgiveness of sins. There's a little bit of difference between a Redeemer and someone who saves you or forgives you. The Redeemer is paying a price. The forgiveness of sins is what that price did. He forgives. I know a lot of people, whether they're Christians or not, that go throughout life full of guilt If I were to ask you to raise your hands today, if there was something in your life, in your past, that you've done that you're not proud of, and I asked you, is it still weighing on you? Are you carrying around that baggage, that guilt? Many of you, if you're honest, you'd probably raise your hands and say, yeah, I have. I've asked God for forgiveness, and I know he's forgiven me, but... Man, it's, it just is so bad, Scott. I don't even want to talk about it. But here's the good news. Jesus has forgiven you for real. 
And if you discount that forgiveness, you're discounting his blood that he shed on the cross. What you're essentially saying is that wasn't good enough. Can you imagine going up to a mom and, who, who willingly gave their son to pay for your sins and then you said, well, that wasn't good enough. That wasn't enough to cover this sin. That would be, I can't even fathom anyone being willing to do that. So you need to know today, if you've ever confessed your sins before God and asked him, asked him just simply to forgive you, there's nothing that you can add on top of his blood that does any good. His payment was enough. So right away, you can not only know that you're forgiven and you don't have to carry that guilt around, but you can avoid false teachings and philosophies that try to add on to who Jesus is to make you feel better, to make you um, more complete, to fill you up. There's a false teaching out there that we're just kind of these empty hearts and we have to be filled constantly. No, Jesus was, he is all, he is sufficient. We are complete in him. You don't have to add on or hopefully take away from what Jesus did. He is our redeemer, he is our savior. And then we finish with this. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Next week, we'll go into the deeper aspects of who he is as far as the creator. He is there in the beginning. But this idea is simply this. He is the firstborn of all creation. What does firstborn mean? Was Jesus created in the 300s, in the third century AD, there was this major problem in the church. It was called the Arian controversy. And this individual was introducing this teaching that Jesus had actually been created. And he was using this very verse to suggest that Jesus was a created being. He was not co-eternal with the Father. He is not truly God. A modern controversy, a modern teaching that goes with this is Jehovah's Witness. That theology, if they've come to you, if you have family or friends that are a part of that, they are teaching that Jesus was a created being. Once again, I'm challenging you to be mature. And in your maturity, you're going to have to deal with loving people, kind people, gracious people, who have either twisted or taken away or added to Scripture. So what are we to believe about the idea of firstborn? What does that mean? Does it mean that Jesus was literally born of someone? Well, there are three things that you figure this out on. Number one, linguistically. I want to read a psalm to you. This is in reference to King David. In the Old Testament, during Jesus' day, the Old Testament was translated into Greek. It was called the Septuagint. In Psalms 89, 27, it says this of King David, speaking, this is God speaking, he says, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kingdom, or the highest of the kings on earth. Firstborn is used to refer to being an heir. It is a place or a title of sovereignty. So when it says Jesus here in Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. When you see Jesus, when he came in the flesh, 
He appeared as God. He wasn't just a man who was kind of spiritual. He was God. And he is firstborn. In other words, he is heir over all creation. So the very first thing you have to determine is, is it referring to firstborn being born of a woman or as a title, someone who is heir or who is above all others in creation? Well, then it goes into the next verse, and you look at it by context. It says in verse 16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So the context here is this. How can someone who was created create something, but he was yet to be created? It doesn't make sense. You have a creator who was created. In order to create, he had to be created, but he couldn't create because he hadn't been created yet. It really doesn't kind of make sense if you're trying to say Jesus was created in the context here. So linguistically, you can either go with title or he was firstborn. And then the third aspect on how you understand this verse is simply this. It is a failure of metaphors. Every time that we look at Adam in scripture, he is referred to as someone who was formed or made, not someone who was born because he wasn't born. He was created. So here it's referring to Jesus as firstborn. Firstborn is different than being created. Even if you take it as firstborn, like your firstborn child, the metaphor fails. So I want to leave you with this today. Jesus is God. He reflected God perfectly in all his glory. He is heir to the whole world. He created it. He formed it. It was made by him and for him for his glory. And you are a part of that. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ today as your Lord and Savior, you have to realize the kingdom of God is all about Jesus. He is Lord, he is sovereign, he is king. No one can take him from you. No one can add anything to what he has done. And no one can take away truly what he has done. My question to you this coming week is do you really know who Jesus is? Do you know him as a child knows him or have you grown in maturity to where that he is not just redeemer and savior, but he is sovereign over all your world. He is sovereign at work, in your relationships, over your children, over your health, over your finances. Do you worship him and understand that the entire world is created by him, through him, and for him. If that is the Jesus that you know, the darkness in this domain can't touch you. I hope that's the hope and the joy and the focus that you have this week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I have to confess, I'm as guilty as anyone for putting my eyes on the things of the world, of trying to uh, find hope and joy in stuff, in toys, in uh, work, whatever the case may be. Lord, you know my heart.
Father, help us to see the unseen. Help us to, to set our minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Help us to realize this Jesus, whom we confess as our, our Lord and Savior, is all. He is all that we need. He is truly worthy of worship. Help us to reflect his glory in our lives this week. In Christ's name I pray this. Amen.